So what happens next? Seems like I should be giving a Dharma talk. (laughs) This question of what happens next is such a driving force in us as human beings. We so want to know. want to know what will happen next, what will happen tomorrow, what will happen next week. 20 years from now. And I've heard some of this in in the meetings in the last few days especially those of you leaving, a sense of a little bit of uncertainty of how is it going to be when I'm home? And I know for myself at this point in the retreat as a yogi staying for three months, a little bit of for the first time, especially the first time I stayed three months, I didn't know the teachers that were coming in. And that was pretty uncomfortable. So my mind was kind of turning over, how's it gonna be? What's gonna happen? And so this tendency we have to want to know what's next. Is, uh, kind of butting up against the truth that we have no idea what's going to happen next. Really, really no idea. And the more we practice both on our on our large arc of practice in our lives and also on a retreat to this length. We begin to touch into this truth more directly. Actually, there are times when it feels like we're directly touching into this truth that we don't know what's going to happen next, but it may actually be more of an understanding of this truth. We can understand this truth on many levels, on the more gross levels of really very fundamentally We do not know when our last breath will be. Accidents happen every day. Every day someone wakes up in the morning 
And it's their last day alive. And yet they're not aware of that. And then on a a more refined level or a more moment-to-moment level, as the mindfulness gets stronger, more continuous, we start to see that moment-to-moment we really don't have any idea what the next arising will be. This kind of, for me, became more obvious as I practiced, as I shifted my practice from a directed attention to a more receptive kind of attention, a more open awareness, where I wasn't consciously deciding what to pay attention to. And just this endless, sometimes felt like an onslaught of experience and no idea what the next moment would bring. And so this, this truth, it is a truth that we don't know what the next moment will bring. It's not a mistake. It doesn't have to be a problem. And yet our mind habitually comes back to this question, what's next, what's next? Thinking somehow that having an idea of what's next will control the uncontrollable. This truth is related to the truth of impermanence the changing nature of experience, the uncontrollable nature of experience. And as we come more and more fully into the present moment, we see this truth more clearly. There's so many ways that our minds obscure this truth. That we miss it in our everyday lives. Even here on retreat, we miss it. a, A big part of what's in the way or what's obscuring this truth that we don't know what the next moment will bring are views, beliefs, agendas, thoughts. Especially those connected to a sense of I, me, and mine. We carry 
ideas about what's happened in the past, thoughts, views about what's happened before, into the present moment and somehow think, you know, kind of our, our mode or our mind kind of thinks, well, what's happened before, that's what's, that's what's going to keep happening. Views and beliefs about who we are, what we do, what we're capable of, what we have been capable of, what we think we have been capable of. We project that that is what we will be capable of. And so we kind of box ourselves in with these views based on what we think about ourselves, what other people think about us. We box other people in based on what we think about them. Carrying our ideas and views, beliefs from the past into the present moment. What might it mean to open to the possibility that we're more or not what we think we are? We project into the future this idea of knowing what we of thinking that we know what will happen in, a w- in ways that just are so subtle even. Like just sitting here this evening, you might kind of envision what tomorrow will be like. And maybe you don't know exactly what it'll be like, but you have the sense that you'll wake up in the bed in the room that you've been in and you know, that kind of thing, right? We, we, we just feel like we know what's going to happen. So these ideas and concepts of what has happened, we take to be what will happen. This can, at one point, this kind of got pointed out to me, this, uh, this kind of nature of the mind to pick up yesterday and put it on to tomorrow, or pick up today and put it on to tomorrow, that's what it's going to be like, or pick up last Tuesday and that's what tomorrow Tuesday is going to be like, oh, it's Monday. Pick up last Monday and that's what tomorrow Monday is going to be like. When I joined the Peace Corps, I had a very odd experience as I was flying, got on the plane and left my friends behind, left my house behind, packed everything up, everything that I was gonna have for the next two years and a couple of suitcases and flew to this little island in the South Pacific. I'd read some stuff, you know, I wasn't, this is part of this wanting to know. I tried to educate myself about what the place would be like and what I might see there and what the culture was like and all of that stuff. But as I was flying in the airplane, I had this very odd experience of thinking, it was kind of like my mind believed I wasn't going to get there because I couldn't envision it. I could not imagine what tomorrow would be like. 
it was a very strange experience. And then when we did arrive, it was this interesting like, oh, okay, here I am. This is where I am now. I get in this line, get my passport stamped. Okay, I can do that. I didn't know it was on the other side of the, of customs and immigration, but you know, it was just like each moment was just like the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And that is actually how things unfold. But it was just such a clear experience to me of how much we pick things up, of how we, we create the future and then live that creation so much of the time, rather than really entering into just what's here, what's actually here. When we carry things from the past into the present, we carry things from the past and the present into the future, we also construct this present moment. We live in a constructed present. And mostly, or much of the time, we are not so clearly aware of that. Everything that we experience, without exception, all that we experience is a creation of our minds. I'm not saying that there's not stuff out there. At least I think that you're out there and I'm not just like some brain in a vat imagining giving a Dharma talk. I think this is happening. But what I'm saying is that my experience, the only thing I can touch is a creation of this mind. And the same for you. All that we experience is a creation of our minds and yet so often we do not recognize this and we take that creation to be what's out there, what's actually there. And this, this kind of concept making and perception and conceptualization is a huge way that this not knowing is obscured. This kind of really entering into this truth that we do not know what this moment, this next moment will bring, that this unfolding is is a mystery. And a big piece of that obscuration is because our minds believe the concepts that we are constructing to be the reality. Now this concept making is useful and so I'm not advocating us to live without concepts. I think our cultures might descend into chaos if we didn't have concepts and shared ideas about, yes, we have breakfast at this time, lunch at this time, you know, these shared kind of values and shared senses of things. 
And yet, to not recognize that this is a construction of mind is a, is a, is a major way how we mistakenly take what is impermanent to be permanent, what is unreliable to be reliable, what is uncontrollable to be controllable. And so that kind of understanding of concepts, thoughts, views, we don't have to get rid of them, perceptions. We're probably not going to be able to get rid of them. we can know that they are concepts, they are thoughts, they are views. And so this, understand concept is concept. Understand a view as a view, a perception as a perception. And we are recognizing these two as simply arisings, impermanent, arisings in the mind. And as we see our thoughts, our perceptions, our concepts as something that's just arising, we get closer to this meeting or touching into, fully opening to this truth that we do not know. so much of our belief that we know is tied up in in our ideas around concepts. And when we see this concept being constructed as an arising, we see it's not what's actually out there. It is just something the mind is making up. It is creating it. It is imagining it. And yet, as I said it, you know, it actually does a pretty good job of imagining. You know, it does a pretty good job of being somewhat in the vicinity of what's going on out there. And yet, as we start to see this process, concept making, even the, the aspect of perception, which is a a little more rudimentary form of a concept, just a bare recognition of what's happening. We see that they're really prone to making a mistake. And so recognizing concept as concept, recognizing perception as perception, we can hold it lightly and recognize this is my perception, this is what I am understanding at this point. The Buddha pointed to this 
kind of this danger around concept and how um, views, perceptions and views can really create a lot of suffering in our, in our world. There's a famous teaching story of the elephant and the blind people. Many of you may be familiar with a version of this story. And it's found in the Buddhist texts. It's a teaching story found in the Buddhist texts. And so the story goes that in a kingdom, a king asked the elephant trainer to bring an elephant and asked his minister to gather all the blind people in the kingdom and then asked them, uh, the elephant trainer to show the, the blind the elephant and some touched the some were, sh- were, were touching the legs, some the tail, some the trunk. And each time they were told, this is the elephant. This is an elephant. And after they had all touched a various part of the elephant, they were asked to describe what is an elephant like. And some said, an elephant's like a post, the ones who touched the leg. Some said the elephant's like a broom, the ones who'd who'd touched the tail. Some said the elephant's like a wall of a storeroom, the one who'd touched the side of the elephant. And the story goes that they came to blows, they argued and came to blows over what an elephant is. An elephant is like this, an elephant is not like that. Now, In this story, I see that there's kind of a little bit of deception going on because the person who showed each one the elephant said, this is an elephant. And so they were kind of being encouraged to create this view that this is the elephant. And yet this kind of thing happens all the time to us. We create a view about something based on direct experience so this is really pointing to kind of the, the, part of the, part of what happens is that we create views, not just, it's not just constructed out of, you know, a complete imagining, it's constructed based on our experience. And we don't see that we're only getting a small piece of the picture. And so we think we have the whole picture, but we've only got a part of the picture. And so we take our view to be true, to be what it is, that the truth of it. So that's the concept. This is what this is, based on this smaller piece of information. And so this does caution us, this story does caution us about creating views out of direct experience to recognize that they are views. This is what's so important, to recognize, oh, this is a view. And then perhaps we can hear other views. If we're not taking our view to be absolute truth, we can maybe hear other views and have a discussion, put the pieces together One of my 
favorite quotes from the suttas. Uh, it's from the Atakavaga, a text in the Sutta Nipata. And it goes something like, those attached to perception and views roam the world offending people. Holding tightly to views, we aren't able to see clearly. And actually, the Buddha particularly cautioned us around views related to meditative experience. In the Sutta, Bhante has been mentioning the Sutta, the 62 views, um, this teaching on the all-embracing net of views, the whole host of different views people held at the time of the Buddha. And they're pretty, pretty, it's a pretty exhaustive set of views. Um, And many of those views and, and some of the stickiest views that are pointed to in that list of views come out of deep meditation experience. When we touch into something in meditation, something that feels so true, so deeply here, and that coming out of that experience, we attribute some ontological reality to what we have experienced rather than recognizing this too is an experience. And so he really cautioned us about creating views out that, that arise based on our meditation experience. So this wanting to know, wanting to know, we we can start to see this. And I've heard over the last weeks, some of you talking about this, how much there's this like urge to understand, to know. Kind of the mind starts searching. What is it that I need to know? And it can, there can, it can be uncomfortable. We can feel a sense of discomfort if we don't have a sense of knowing And so this begins to point to some of what happens for us as we touch into this place of not knowing. As we begin to open to just what's arising, just what's arising, including this concept as a concept that's arising, this belief is a belief that's arising. We begin to See that we don't know what's coming next. And this can be uncomfortable. It can feel that at a deep level, at a deep human level, you know, we want to know. And so we can start to look at that. Look at that wanting to know and the discomfort that comes with it. 
by its very nature, insight is something that we cannot anticipate. And so, in some ways, opening to this truth of not knowing is kind of a place of uh, landing in or opening to this, um, maybe practice for uh, the opening to insight. Because we cannot know what we don't know. We tend to be drawn to the familiar. We like knowing that we know. We like being, you know, paying attention. I know what I'm paying attention to. We like that. And sometimes we can kind of gravitate to what we're already familiar with. And it feels pretty good, you know? It's like being right with the breath. That feels pretty good. Knowing how the breath feels. And yet, at some points in our practice, orienting towards what we're already familiar with, kind of keeping the mind directed there, is not going to let us see something new. Sometimes if we're kind of searching for, in that place of wanting to know, we might be searching for something familiar to land on or trying to figure out what the awareness is paying attention to. And the very act of searching might be obscuring something. It, it's, it's, it's really, it takes a trust to open to this truth of not knowing. On one retreat, I suffered a lot over wanting an insight, wanting to have an insight about impermanence. And uh, I really wanted that insight. Teachers had talked about things in the hall and it kind of seemed like that would be a, a really cool thing to see. And so I was suffering a lot because I wasn't experiencing what I thought I was, I, I might experience. And at some point, I was, you know, feeling into the wanting of, you know, wanting this insight, you know, wanting this understanding. And uh, noticed, I was doing walking meditation out front here, and I at one point noticed that the mind was creating a story. It was telling... It was telling a story about being in the interview room with my teacher and telling my teacher that I'd had that insight. (laughs) And we were 
laughing and celebrating. And, and it felt really good. And in that seeing, I realized, I have no idea what I want. What I want is to be able to tell somebody that I had that insight. So the idea that I wanted this understanding, I didn't know what that was, but I wanted some like perks or something that I thought would come with it. So we don't know what we're looking for. We really have to enter into this not knowing. And even in kind of more ordinary ways, there can be things that we, um, we miss because we're looking for the familiar or we're orienting towards what we already know. Sayadaw Utejaniya talked about a, a time when he was, he was here visiting in Massachusetts and uh, he was driving around, um, somebody was driving him around in the car and um, the person who was driving him mentioned that there was a deer alarm on the car, a kind of a high-pitched tone that the deer can hear, that humans, uh, it's, a, it's a higher pitch than we typically notice. And um, he said to Sayadaw, he said, you can hear it if you, if you, you know, it is possible to hear it. And so Sayadaw said he was trying to hear it, trying to find it. And he couldn't, he couldn't find it, he couldn't hear it. Again, he didn't know what he was looking for. And then he said he relaxed and stopped trying. And he heard it. And this is, this is a pointer for us. And this relax and stop looking. And this kind of curiosity, not of how can I see this thing, but more relax and what's here, that supports a kind of investigation. A meeting of an investigation that is not investigating something that we already have kind of our ideas about, but more of a, what's this? What's this? So what's the difference between this kind of truth of not knowing and the not knowing of ignorance? They're kind of, in ways, they're kind of just two completely different things that are, the not knowing of ignorance actually is in the way of seeing this not knowing of moment to moment experience. Because in not knowing that we've been exploring, we touch into with really being present for moment-to-moment experience, really being here. It points us to this truth of impermanent, unreliable, to the nature of experience being impermanent, unreliable, and uncontrollable. 
and it's it's about a kind of a letting go of views, concepts, ideas, or a recognizing that views are arising, that we can see into this truth. And the not knowing of ignorance is a not understanding of the the nature of impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. Because of views, we take things to be permanent, we take things to be reliable, we take things to be controllable. And so the not knowing of ignorance is bound up with these, uh, with these views and concepts and not seeing that that's what they are. And so a question, another question might arise. Okay, so views kind of get in the way of this seeing the nature of things as they are. So, so what's this wise view about? Isn't that just another view that gets in the way? And this, uh, this reflection was one that was around at the time of the Buddha. And um, there's a, a story of Ananda Pindika. I love this story. It's a, such a deep, a deep teaching. Um, and it's given by a householder. Ananda Pindika was a householder. So that's uh, kind of a nice thing to reflect on. So he was talking to some um, followers of other religious perspective, other sects, and um, they came up to him and said, tell us, what are the views that the Buddha has? And Ananda Pindika said, well, you know, I can't tell you what the views are that the Buddha has. Well, how about the monks? Can you tell us the views that the monk has? And, and uh, he says, no, I can't tell you that either. So they finally ask him, well, can you tell us what your views are? And he said, yeah, I can tell you that. But first, why don't you tell me what your views are? And so they do that. And each one of them offers their perspective on, and, and in, in this case, they were offering their perspective on some aspect of, of ontological reality, and one of them said something like, the universe is infinite, infinite, this alone is true, everything else is wrong. Another says, the universe is not infinite, it's finite, this alone is true, everything else is wrong. And they, they had various views like this. Again, held in this way, kind of along the lines of the, of the story of the blind people and the elephant, that this is what's true. And um, after they, they all told Anandapindika their views, Anandapindika said, this view, this view of yours has either arisen based on something somebody else told you, or it's based on unwise attention to an experience that you've had. And clinging to that view creates suffering. 
And so they kind of turned that over a little bit, but then one came back to him and said, so what are, what are your views? And Ananda Pindika said, here's the kind of view that I hold. I hold the view that clinging to anything, clinging to views, is suffering. And they tried to use his argument on them, uh, that he used on them, that, well, clinging to that view, you're clinging to that view too. And he said, well, when I see that I'm clinging, I see that it's suffering. And right there, the mind lets it go. And so this points to what right view is about. It's about a view that is in alignment with the nature of experience, the impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of experience, and that clinging creates suffering. And so it's about, it's an experiential kind of view. It's a view about what's the nature of experience. It's not about what's the nature of some ontological reality. And what's the nature of how that clinging to experience creates suffering. Not clinging to that experience is released from suffering. So it's a different kind of view in a way, but at the same time, initially we do have to kind of pick it up as a belief. We do have to pick, pick up these teachings that the Buddha offers as a kind of a belief. If we, didn't, if we didn't pick it up as a view or as a belief, we would never step on this path. But what seems to happen as we practice is that the, that view... We start, because of that view, we start to look at our experience in a different way. We start to recognize what's happening in our experience, not through the concepts, but through what's arising and what's passing away. And through that, holding that view and bringing the practice of mindfulness, these two together, mindfulness and wise view, then we see in our direct experience what leads towards suffering and what leads away from suffering. So again, it's experiential. And the experience of wise view, the, the understanding or the insight there into wise view is the insight into clinging causes suffering, letting go releases suffering. It's a direct experience. It's not, it's not, it's not another uh, idea. It's a direct connection with the actual experience of the truth of release. You can experience this. When you see some wanting release, you feel the freedom of that. That's not an idea. That's the release of, from suffering. And so this way of experiencing lets us touch into things as they are. 
seeing the impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of experience. And we begin to touch into this truth that we do not know what the next moment will bring. As we touch into that and more, yeah, more, full, more fully, let's say, it can be really uncomfortable seeing this truth that we don't know. Seeing how impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable experience is. You know, at some very deep level, our system, you know, of this being, our system just goes, no, I don't like that. I don't want it to be that way. And so we resist it. We fight it. We're afraid. Many different relationships here, feelings of vulnerability, insecurity, fear, to touching into this truth, touching into this unreliability, this not knowing. There's different ways this happens. One, one thing I'll say is it's when you explore, experience this, and, and I heard some of this in, in some of the meetings today about some of you going home. It's like a sense of a feeling of a little bit of like, wow, what's waiting for me? You know, a little bit of fear. You know, that, that kind of, the idea of not knowing, creating fear. That on a kind of a bigger level, a more, a more ordinary or conventional level, we can experience this fear of not knowing. And, and on a more moment-to-moment level, we can also experience this fear of not knowing. And sometimes this fear or feeling of vulnerability or feeling of insecurity is actually not based on the actual experience, but it's based on the idea that you don't know. The idea that something's going to happen and I don't know what it is, that the mind reacts to that, a kind of a projection into the future, a little bit of a kind of imagining of what's going to be waiting for me. I don't know what's going to be waiting for me. And it's truth that we don't know what's going to be waiting for us. But, but we're not actually in that. We're not actually responding to the fear of, of um, kind of this deeper level of not knowing. It's, it's kind of more of a fear of an idea that we don't know. And this was pointed out to me on one retreat even on a very moment-to-moment level, this kind of fear can play out. I was experiencing a kind of a, 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 a kind of a fear about just kind of realizing I have no idea what the next arising is going to be, and I was in this this place of kind of agitated fear around not knowing what the next moment's arising was going to be. It's like, am I going to be able to meet it? I don't know if I'm going to be able to meet it. I don't know what it is. How can I know if I'm going to be able to meet it? 
And so the, the experience of fear was, was kind of prevalent. And during one walking meditation, I, I decided, I, I was doing walking in the hall right outside the meditation hall, I decided, okay, I'm going to face this fear. This fear about not knowing what is going to happen. And what I discovered as I decided, you know, so there, there was a curiosity, well, what is, what's going on here? I got curious about this fear and about the unknown. And what I discovered was that every step I took, it was known. And then the next step was known. There was nothing unknown in this moment's experience. And I could see that the mind was projecting just to the next split second, not knowing what that was, and and, and fear that I'm not going to be able to meet this. I have to be able to control how I meet this. And it was just, in the next moment, there was a step and there was the awareness of it. And with that, there was the, the kind of the recognition of that fear is not about actually what is unknown. It was about the idea that I didn't know. And so this is one way that that happens. And I think this happens a lot to us, both in this kind of this moment-to-moment way, but also in our everyday lives. When we are thinking about not knowing or not being certain about the future, feeling vulnerable or insecure, what is it that we're actually relating to? What What are we reacting to? Often it's an idea, a construction of our minds that we're afraid of. And sometimes, sometimes there is this experience of kind of it feeling like there's a a slipperiness to the mindfulness. It's like as soon as something, as soon as the mind is kind of touching into something, it's already vanishing and we don't even know what it is. So sometimes there's this kind of feeling of just slipping, 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 slipping and nowhere to land. Kind of a more direct experience of this a more visceral experience of this place of not knowing. And again, we can have kind of r- different relationships to that, of fear, of confusion, of, of um, anxiety. And it's really important to recognize that. Because the path unfolds by noticing because essentially that fear, that anxiety is a, is a resistance to this truth or to this experience, to this slipping away of experience, this passing away of experience. And so it's a form of clinging. It's a form of, of no, it's not okay that it's like this. And that is where, that is how the practice kind of deepens by looking at the clinging by knowing the clinging. Sometimes in that kind of place you might look at the anxiety and see it's too just slipping away. 
Nowhere to land. Nowhere to land. Joseph tells a, gives an analogy of the practice, that kind of, kind of a summary of this talk in a way. I think it's Joseph's analogy. I think he, he, he came up with it. And he gave this analogy about skydiving and that the practice kind of unfolds like skydiving. And so initially maybe you're, you know, you're strapping on your parachute and getting in the plane and maybe there's some enthusiasm and excitement. Oh, I'm going skydiving. This will be fun. And, and you get in the plane and you're climbing and, and uh, you know, experiencing that. And, and then, you know, you get to the place where you've come to altitude and you, you're told, okay, it's time to jump out of the plane. And you kind of look at over the edge and it's like, yeah, yeah no, I don't want to let go. <laughs> so there's this kind of clinging and this fear around the letting go to, to step into that, into that uh, falling. And then you finally get up your courage to let go and you've got your parachute on and uh, you're falling and, you know, initially it's kind of a little bit scary but then at a certain point you hit this place where it almost feels like floating you know, the place where the, 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 the body has reached terminal velocity so that it just feels like you're floating and there's just this delight of this experience. Kind of a joy and a bliss of just being right there with the falling. And then you realize you don't have a parachute. And then the fear really kicks in. And you're kind of like trying to navigate, what am I going to do? How am I going to figure this out? And th- there's, th- you know, terror, dread, etc. All of this, you know, imagining what it's going to be like when you hit the ground. And then he says, you realize that there's no ground. That's that understanding of not knowing. Just this endless changing conditions, no ground. And that is actually a relief. So letting go like this requires a lot of trust. And part of our practice is recognizing that, you know, this, this kind of, this, the, 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 the analogy of the parachuting is great in this way because there's times of like, well, no, I don't trust jumping out of this plane. You know, so there are times where we, we run up against our edges. And that's not a mistake. That's just running up against our clinging. And we just know that. 
And so we, we take the step of opening to, okay, this is what's here and there's fear. Or this is what's here and there's patience to be with that. Trust and let go and let go and trust. It's a process. The whole of our practice could be looked at as a deepening of this trust to let go deeper and deeper and deeper levels. Let's just sit for a few minutes. Sometimes meeting this unknown can feel like we're standing on the edge of an abyss and we're asked to step into the abyss. And the trust there, hard, hard to trust that and yet as we start to trust that, we take the step into the abyss and in the next moment we find ourselves standing on the edge of the abyss. (laughs) 